Marine, a contemporary ghost story, written and narrated by Roy Baldwin. Chapter 4 Catching her heel in a bumpy pavement on Dale Street, Victoria almost ended her five-day holiday in the first half an hour, but was saved from disaster by the quick reactions of Abby, who grabbed her arm and hauled her away from the approaching shop window in an instant. Hey, the last thing we want is you back in the hospital again. If you want to practice headbutting, can you save it for your boss when you see him next rather than launching yourself at HMV's shiny frontage? Thanks, Victoria whispered, seeing other shoppers stirring. That was close. Those damn five-inch heels. I knew I should have worn sensible shoes. Hey, how come you're not speaking Mancunian all of a sudden? Going to see a posh solicitor, have to look the part alongside you. The new me is emerging. Just take your time, girl. There's no big hurry. You can sue Liverpool Council another time. Anyway, I'm dying for a coffee. What about the Costa over there? Gosh, this area is all environmentally restored. I do like the way they renovated the beautiful historic buildings here. You know, once it was full of sailors and wayward women. Yes, and you're back again now, Victoria responded with a grin. Forget coffee, look over there. I can see Process Street. This solicitor office, Green and Burgess, is up there somewhere. I wonder if we can find Hitler's restaurant. Pardon? Actually, it was his half-brother, Alwa, who ran it on Dale Street with his wife in the early part of the last century and who maintained Hitler stayed with them there for some time, draft-dodging from the First World War. Hmm, that street looks more like a back alley that you find dingy nightclubs down. You continue to be an amazing mine of historic facts. I thought you were supposed to be a textile designer. I'm a woman of many talents. At least those heels give you a statuesque, imposing look. Good for getting your own way with Green's Burgess especially with the deep crimson coat. What made you choose that colour? Although it suits you, actually. I don't know. Just woke up yesterday and fancied it badly. They crossed the road and turned into the side street, noticing a small cobbled alleyway about 20 yards up. Here was a distinct feeling of a return to yesteryear, seeing the gold sign of Green and Burgess barely legible hanging from black chains in front of a dirty old Victorian four-storey building, which somehow had missed the clean-up scheme everywhere else. You first, Abby whispered at the front door. Looks a bit creepy up there. Press that bell. A young female voice answered, wrapped in a thick Liverpool accent. Eh, can I help, like? They looked at each other, mildly surprised, as Victoria drew back and in her posturous voice, acquired since Eva had meticulously taught her to speak in BBC Radio 4 English tone, like her, rather than Victoria's broader form of Lancashire, replied confidently. It's Dr Abigail Mackenzie, with my colleague Dr Abigail Warren. I have an appointment with a Mr Linton Gray at 10.30. Eh, uh, just hang on whilst to check. Yeah, no problem. Just push the door when the buzzer goes like, know what I mean? Abby stifled a laugh as Victoria nudged her and they entered a quite dimly lit small reception area, most of which was taken up with a large mahogany desk. 
staring first at the conspicuously odd silver plate with Sally receptionist in bold print stamped on the front. They then looked up and the grinning Sally in a black microskirt matching tights and a white t-shirt walked through, shook hands and pointed to the narrow rickety old stairs in the corner. Eh, it's the boss himself up there right at the fifth floor. I'm afraid the lift's sort of knackered today, is that okay? Oh, no problem, thank you, Sally. We can walk up, Victoria proffered, seeing Abby wince. They set off up the creaking wooden stairs which went round and round like in a castle. Business isn't exactly booming in here, is it? Victoria whispered back to Abby behind, already puffing and panting, and they were only at the third floor. I reckon you eat too many of those kebabs you cook. Time to get to the gym with me, I think. Aha, but I agree. I always thought solicitors were those guys like bankers who have Lamborghinis and give a girl a good time. Not Mr Grey, I would concur. Anyway, there's the door. It looks like the only room on this corridor. That's because we're in the attic. Suddenly the door at the far end creaked open and a tall, well-built man, mid-thirties with a trim beard and a very expensive-looking blue suit, walked out to greet them. Ah, Dr Mackenzie and your colleague. My name is Gray, Linton Gray, owner of this practice. Victoria ignored Abby, who immediately whispered, shaken, not stirred. Gosh, she is a bit of a dreamboat, would you credit it? Victoria readily admitted, that the expected character from a murky Dickens novel looked more like he had just stepped out from a Vogue modelling shoot. They shook hands and were directed inside towards the seating around the teak coffee table with elephant-carved legs. Victoria saw Abby's face dropped as they both scanned the gorgeous antique Georgian furniture and his huge desk, the rich, warm, velvety-draped armchairs and thick rug carpeting. Abby immediately began to peer closely over the array of paintings on the wall, realising that the middle two were original but reframed obscure Rossetti pre-Raphaelites, probably around 1870, and looking at the female face when the painter was favouring a move of muses from Fanny Cornforth to his favourite sitter Alexis Wilding. At the end was an excellent print of the famous Lady Lilith, making Abby immediately decide she would grow her hair long, frizzy and orange rather than short, spiky and pink. Mr Gray had disappeared into the adjacent kitchen, was brewing coffee and returned with three Japanese printed mugs, black coffee, milk and sugar on a Bakelite tray. Victoria sat down primly and quietly rustling in her bag for a notepad and watching with amazement as he sidled over gaze transfixed on on the brazen Dr Warren. Ah, uh, Abigail, isn't it? Do you like art? My first degree was fine art and my postgraduate was in textiles design, but yes, what wonderful paintings. As she continued to gaze avidly, not noticing how intensely Solicitor Grey was eyeing her up and down. He smiled as she looked back. I'm afraid I couldn't afford the original Lady Lilith, but this was done by a student at the Liverpool College of Art. It was so good I bought it immediately. Collecting Victorian work is a passion of mine. I have a private gallery in Southport. Perhaps you might like to see some more if you get any time.
Do you have etchings too? Victoria stifled a cough. As her coffee went down the wrong way, amazed at the never-before-seen doe-eyed look in Abby's eyes, whilst he was obviously equally transfixed. He grinned, the irony obviously not lost. Of course, in fact I recently acquired a couple of etchings and engravings by David Lorb from my father who retired last year. This was his business, which I had bought out, the original Green and Burgess, having passed on many years back. I'm in the middle of, uh, well, a serious updating and upgrade of the practice. Really? A founder member of the Royal Society of Painter Etchers? He was also an excellent map maker for many years. You are very knowledgeable, Abigail. Uh, Miss Warren. Dr. Abby Warren. Victoria looked from one to the other, barely able to contain herself, now totally frozen out with the rapturous grey Warren show unfolding before her gaze. She coughed politely, a gentle reminder that this was supposed to be her formal meeting and she had an inheritance to nail down, like. I'm so sorry, Victoria, he said softly, walking to his desk. Now, if you would both like to enjoy the coffee for a moment whilst I collect the files, I think the critical one has been left in my safe across the corridor. I'll just be a moment. Oh, and I'm sorry, I have some bad news for you, Abby. They both looked up mystified as he shot out through the door. Bloody hell, that didn't last long, Vicky, Abby murmured, slurping down her hot drink. He was growing on me, sort of big time. Very nice coffee, though. Yes, I can see that. Hey, this is my meeting today. I have work to do, not getting you laid, Victoria replied, mildly irritated. I'm sorry, Chuck, but... Abby didn't have time to finish the sentence as Linton Gray returned. Now, the terms of this disposal are rather complex and unusual and must be discussed in private. I'm afraid, Abby, I will have to continue with Victoria on her own. Will you be able to find something to do in town? We'll be about an hour. Actually, the College of Art isn't far and they have an exhibition on presently. I'm a governor. Victoria smirked as Abby face, Abby's face dropped but then lit up again when he handed her his card with the mobile number ringed. In case, he said, you also need the services of a reliable solicitor in the future. That's a shame, Abby, Victoria quipped. But when Mr Gray and I have finished, I'll give you a ring on the mobile and meet you at the College of Art. We can probably have lunch there. It sounds like you would enjoy the exhibition. Abby gave her a fleeting glance of a knowing glare and then smiled at both. Exhibition it is. Well, goodbye, Mr. Gray. It was a pleasure meeting you. Me too, he replied, shaking Abby's hand and eyeing her over again. Don't forget, if you are ever at a loose end in Southport, you will be very welcome at my gallery. I won't. See you later. She tripped out of the door and clattered down the stairs with a newfound energy. Victoria breathed a quiet sigh of relief. Now she could get on with getting to the bottom of this increasingly unfathomable intrigue. After more coffee toppings up, Linton Gray proceeded to explain the detail, guiding Victoria through various contracts and strange legal wordings, which she was quite happy leaving to him as to whether to sign the bits of paper or not. What she really wanted to know was how she had inherited the place. Seeing as all the known family were dead, 
although obviously now that had not been the case. But Orsbrick Hall? How could she possibly be the owner of that awful place when she was never allowed to visit and smarting in her head again from the memory of the vicious swipe over the cheeks she got from her mother the day she was caught on her bicycle when about to head up there? After half an hour of contorted legal discussions about the contents of the will, Victoria realised that she still hadn't been told any more about who owned it, only that he had gone through all the complexities and property background with a fine tooth comb, and could see no legal reason for her not to sign it, except for a couple of quite specific requirements. I've been particularly requested not to tell you who owns this property, Dr Mackenzie, he uttered, suddenly getting formal. All I can provide you with is the address of the person through whom I am acting, and that you are asked to go and visit before making up your mind whether to sign up to the legacy or not. Her name is Evelyn West, and she was, in fact, the original beneficiary of Orsbrick Hall, but has specifically relinquished all rights to you, if you comply with all the conditions. Which are? That you visit her soon, live in the property for at least 12 months, and at that point you will be the recipient of a trust fund which has been set aside. The money is residing in a London bank under our control here until that eligibility is fulfilled. How much is the trust fund? I'm not allowed to say either, but I can certainly confirm that it is all accumulated Mackenzie wealth passed on through many generations in your family, Victoria. Victoria was completely amazed, transfixed on such a remarkable turn of events. Why on earth was there all this mystery? And being a rational scientist, used to debating the fineries of decision-making, with clear experimental evidence in front of her from which she can make logical conclusions, she was uneasy with the weird obfuscation. She stopped gazing at the papers and turned to him directly. None of this, Mr Gray, please. I think you can call me Linton now. She noticed he blushed, which amused her. Well, Linton, it doesn't make sense because all of my family are dead. My father certainly never mentioned any family wealth. He was a science teacher in a minor public school for all his life. We lived quite frugally in a small cottage. If there had been any money, my mother would certainly have gotten her hands on it. Your mother? Is she still alive? To be honest, I don't know. Once I left home... Almost 20 years ago, I never heard from her again, and she sold our cottage and disappeared back to America, and I only picked that up on my father's death accidentally two years after it all happened. So could she be a benef... He interrupted her promptly. No, she is not and cannot. But why? I'm not permitted to say. And Orsbrick Hall. I remember always seeing it at a distance as a child. We were never allowed to go near it so I assume a relative of mine was living there. That is so peculiar, and who is Evelyn West? I'm sorry, Victoria, handing her an envelope, but I can't tell you that either. In fact, I don't really know her background. Here is a card with her address. She opened the small brown envelope carefully and gazed at the flowery and ornate card. Miss Evelyn West, textile artist, Appleby Lodge, Parbold. A textile artist? I'm sure she will tell you, but I should advise, 
Appleby Lodge is a private care home and Miss West is in her 90s and rather frail so I wouldn't leave it long. No, I won't, she replied calmly, thinking that she would hire a car pronto. Thank you for all your work, Linton. It is much appreciated. Now I can see you're very busy with that mounting of paperwork on your desk, so I'll see myself out and no doubt we will be in touch one way or the other. A pleasure, Victoria. Oh, can you tell your friend, Abby, uh, Dr Warren, that I have quite an interesting collection of Victorian etchings I am sure she would enjoy perusing. I actually live near Southport. I'm sure she would. I won't forget, Victoria replied with a grin. Is your wife an art collector too? No, I'm not married. A widow, actually, he mumbled, again blushing slightly. I'm so sorry, Linton. It must be, well, sort of difficult readjusting. It was some time back. My work keeps me very busy. Good day then, Dr Mackenzie, he replied, polite but determined. Obviously, she thought, cutting off any further discussion of that topic still patently painful. She slaunted slowly down the stairs, her brain whirring madly with all kinds of data assembly and synthesis of what she had learned so far, when she suddenly became aware of a strange, pungent smell. Stopping on the third floor, she looked around. Total silence. There didn't seem to be anyone else in the building, but that smell was strong, like some sort of coal tar, benzene or aniline again. Her mind immediately flew backwards to the refinery, the same smell when she was in the distillation tower, just before she felt frightened and began to clatter down the stairs, throwing the final door open to reception, to be greeted by a smiling Sally once again. Everything go like okay with the boss then, Dr Mackenzie? Fine, thank you, Sally. What is that awful smell on the stairs? I'm sorry. Victoria looked into Sally's face, totally blank and uncomprehending. She breathed in again and couldn't smell a thing, only a vague sense of a recent furniture polish on the shiny desk. It's probably the door open to the toilet on the second floor. We did have some trouble with the drains in there, but I thought they'd like been fixed. I'd better... But Victoria wasn't listening because her attention had been drawn outside through the window. A woman, certainly young but hard to tell her age and very pretty, was standing at the window staring at her with a long and very wistful gaze like they knew each other. She couldn't tell the age because the woman was wearing a very striking mauve shawl around her head and a long black coat. Perhaps actually it was Sally's attention the woman was trying to catch. She turned to Sally. Do you know who that woman is outside looking through the window with the shawl? They both turned around and not a sign of anyone. Sally looked at her rather bemused as Victoria felt her cheeks reddening with embarrassment. What on earth was the matter with her? I'm sorry Sally, I was sure there was a woman standing there trying to catch attention from in here. I know I've only come from Holland but maybe I've got a touch of jet lag or something. Sally smiled. Hey, don't worry yourself. I know just the thing like to cure that feeling. A few vodkas and tonics do wonders for me. Know what I mean? Victoria laughed and headed to the door. I'll be in touch. Bye. See you, Dr Mackenzie. 
she got into the tiny street and looked around intending to head back to Dale Street and then phone Abby. Turning to the left, she started to wander down the street but after a few further turn-offs she realised she had gone totally the wrong way. Everyone around was quite deserted. The street had got narrower and the buildings either side were tall and bleak. Either were houses or, as she noticed from the sign, converted nightclubs probably heaving and lively at night, but completely dead in the day. She became aware of footsteps following her and began to feel panicky, hastening a step as the footsteps got louder. Suddenly two hands were around her waist, pulling at her from behind, and a second guy, Chinese in a hoodie, confronted her, pulling at her handbag. Give your bag and your phone, you fucking bitch! That's all we want, so we'll split your face open! Bloody hell, she thought frantically. She was being mugged in broad daylight. She couldn't scream as the one behind had a big gloved hand across her mouth and eyes, but she struggled like mad. Despite her recent ordeal, she was gym fit and strong and was determined to hang on to her bag come hell or high water. They all struggled in a blur for another five or six seconds as she managed to bang the person at the back against the wall and he released his grip on her head when suddenly a large hand shot out of the blackness of a doorway at a fast velocity and connected directly with the face of the Chinese mugger, sending him sprawling over and over the pavement, blood pouring from his nose all splattered open. The person holding her released his grip and she dived to one side, staring now at her other attacker. He was black Asian and quite burly, but equally taken by surprise at seeing his friend prostrate on the ground. A very tall man in a large brown coat, collar up, hiding much of his face, emerged from the shadows. But was enough for Victoria to see he was probably in his late forties or early fifties, slim, a thick head of curly grey hair, a silk staff across his neck and piercing blue eyes, which settled unerringly on the Asian guy through gold-rimmed spectacles. The Asian was looking like he would square up, as Victoria watched the pair of them. But whoever this man was, his gaze must have penetrated right to the core of that guy, because he simply stood rooted to the spot and shivered. The grey-haired man, without averting his gaze on the assailant, or even blinking, pushed his hand inside his coat and withdrew a short machete. More of the same, young man, he said in a deep and quite cultured voice, with a hint of an accent, but not really Liverpool or Lancashire more like a sort of odd hybrid, including Cockney London. The Asian turned and looked at his friend. Fuck you, come on Shin, let's leave these shitheads to it. He ran off, pulling his friend, still groaning and bleeding, badly up off the floor, and the pair stumbled away down the alley, disappearing into a side street. Victoria, essentially unhurt and her bag undamaged, was just shaken. But something similar had happened to her once before in Amsterdam, so it somehow felt less bad a second time. She turned to her mystery grey-haired knight in brown shining armour, who had returned the machete into his coat and held out her hand. Thank you so much. That was pretty amazing. God knows what they might have done if you hadn't been here there. I'm Victoria. Wondering, actually why he was there because there was absolutely nothing down that street to attract anyone including scallywags and muggers. He held out his hand and shook her warmly. 
Hi, I'm Julian. I was just taking a short cut, to be honest, and bought that butcher's knife for boning meat from a specialist ironmonger further down the way. Cooking is a sort of hobby. The cleaver came in handy, although many years back when I was younger, I did some stints with the Territorial Army and learnt a few tricks for taking care of oneself. She laughed. He and it both came in handy, noting the mischievous twinkle in his serious gaze behind those academic-looking spectacles. What, with wire frames? Just as well. Are you by any chance heading towards Dale Street? I think I got a little lost. I'm visiting Liverpool on business. Don't know my way around. Silly, really, she muttered coyly. Although why, she didn't know. Doing shy, especially with men, wasn't normally one of her core attributes. Yes, as it happens, I am. But I must advise you're going in the exact opposite direction. Tell you what, you look like you could do with a drink. And not far from here in Dale Street, there's an excellent pub, the Ship and Mitre. It's an old traditional place with real ales and a long history. One of my favourites in Liverpool. That sounds like a good idea. Okay, then. Do you have time, Julian? Yes, all the time in the world. I'm a writer, so I don't have a real job or a boss to answer to. They laughed. Neither did she anymore. They began to walk together, back up the street, when she could feel herself feeling a little unsteady, perhaps a bit of aftershock or something else, and she thought. He noticed immediately and gazed down at her five-inch heels. Listen, just put your arm through mine and hold tight. You'll be fine. I won't let you fall, not far to go. They set off, her arm linked firmly into his. She looked up at him and smiled. She was well over six foot in those heels, but he was at least a couple of inches taller, and she felt instantly comfortable, cosy and warm, especially as there had been a distinct and unseasonable approaching autumn chill all the time they had been in Liverpool. She suddenly thought of Abby talking about wanton women and sailors. What on earth would Abby think now? But she decided... Knowing well how self-contained and time-unaware Abby always was, especially in an art exhibition, to ring her a little later. This was proving to be an unexpected but delectable distraction with Julian the writer, whoever he was, and she realised she was quite intrigued to know more about her mystery saviour. Along the way, he described in meticulous detail the historic background of the streets they walked through, of seafaring, skullduggery and merchants, and a generally hard life for many and rich pickings for a few, especially during the 19th century. She listened, fascinated by his deep local heritage knowledge, saying nothing about her own background, but knowing that the terminus of the Leeds and Liverpool Canal, which had sustained many forebears of her friends and childhood acquaintances, was not far away. They arrived quickly at the front of the pub, and she immediately looked up and pulled out her iPhone to take a picture. You couldn't miss the place, standing out uniquely from the other buildings with its stark white block stone frontage, an unusual placement of very tall slatted windows. He took her inside and they headed for a quieter area of a large bar. She was impressed by the design, where everywhere was decked out like the inside of a ship, taking the name of the pub to its true meaning. Julian was certainly correct about the range of unusual beers, many from tiny breweries around the UK. He ordered both of them a three-cheese quiche and generous helping of salad, 
she was feeling decidedly peckish again, along with a large bottle of Belgian beer. The shakes she had earlier had vanished. She quickly learned that Julian Endersby Finnis had done a degree in English literature at Oxford and been a journalist for a long time with a national newspaper and covered some conflict zones, including the Iraq war in Kuwait. Having made sufficient money, he decided some years back to do what he always wanted to do at university and become a writer, was on his fourth published novel and that year, for the first time, was earning more money than he had spent. She gazed at him, unable to get a word in edgeways, the epitome of a dreamy academic, as he rambled on, oblivious to his surroundings and obviously totally enmeshed inside a world of strange characters, weird plots and unlikely happenings of another era totally. She realised as she counted the appearing wrinkles on his forehead and lines around his eyes that despite his good head of grey hair, he was probably in his early fifties. But in his tight-fitting jeans, smart check shirt and trendy jacket, he looked very cool. Eventually she decided to cut in as they were halfway through the delicious salad. So tell me, what exactly is steampunk, Julian? All I know is it involves the Victorian period and science, which interests me. I'm not really a lover of genre fiction. He missed the cue, so she would return to science shortly. He looked vaguely horrified at the thought of steampunk being classed as a simplistic base genre like chiclet, and went into a diatribe of an alternative history of Victorian England, steam-powered machinery, and post-apocalyptic futures of fantasy worlds powered by steam. He was obviously, she thought, a marvellous storyteller. As she continued, quite entranced, gulping down her beer and now tucking into a large oozing profiterole, she felt he was drawing her into his world, that he sketched and moulded every day with words, visions and deeds, which she had no idea could be so imaginative. He concluded by saying that steampunk was a hybrid specialised category of literary fiction, drawing on science fiction, that it was really a culture now influencing fashion as well as philosophy. Despite his obvious leanings to the hyperbole, she was impressed with his enthusiasm and commitment to his writing, and especially his wonderful imagination and communication. Perhaps being cooped up with technicians year after year had dulled her own artistic creativity too much. She loved science, but somehow he gave her a different perspective, which she had never felt before, and she wanted to give him a hug for making her feel so good after that terrible ordeal nearly two weeks ago that could have destroyed her entirely. Would you like another beer, Victoria? I hope it wasn't too strong. I guessed it would suit your taste, and of course you were named directly from that era too. Hmm, true I suppose. Yes please. Anyway Julian, how come you guessed I would like Belgian beer? He smiled, went quiet for the first time and looked directly into her eyes with that beguiling twinkle. A very faint hint of a Dutch accent, which I have pinpointed to likely Rotterdam. Am I correct? Yes, I've lived and worked there for many years. But you're the first person to ever notice. I'm very English with the accent to prove it. Actually, from your from Bursco originally. Now, do you want to know what I do? He grinned and moved closer, as she felt herself take a mild gulp. What was the matter with her insides? She needed really to call Abby. 
Well, soon. Of course, he replied slowly. I'll just get the beers first. Okay, confession. I lived in Rotterdam for three years. Taught liberal arts and sciences at Erasmus University. Researched my first book there. So what's it like being a boat person? Really? What a coincidence. I'm a scientist with a doctorate in polymer chemistry. I've worked for a long time in the refining sector. But I'm not a boat person, though many of my former school friends were. You seem to have a much greater affinity for life on the water. He looked straight through her. Probably. A scientist. Now that is quite fascinating. So what are you doing here? She decided this was not the moment to talk about being in between jobs, inheritances, or any of the other weird things going on in her life right then. Oh, you know, just having a bit of a break, seeing some family and school friends and visiting. Haven't been back for years. He continued looking at her, but made no comment. She could tell by a twitch of his mouth, and a very slight change of focus of attention, that he didn't believe her. She had almost finished her second bottle and was feeling decidedly... No, not drunk, just remarkably relaxed. Oh, she continued, realising that she almost slurred. I'm here with my friend Abby, who has just gone to look at the art exhibition at the college. She did her degree there. Actually, I must phone her and tell her I'm here. Of course. Anyway, I must go, have to meet a colleague in Egberth. Possibly short journalism assignment. This has been a marvellous lunch, Victoria. She looked and blinked. She really didn't want him to leave, although if she was truthful to herself, she didn't know what she wanted. And she was slightly pissed anyway, and didn't do the swapping mobile phone numbers. She was too old for that. I agree. Thank you so much for saving me. He grinned, the laugh lines around his 53-year-old eyes moving about sensuously. She knew he was 53 because he'd left his wallet on the table when he went to the toilet and she had peeked inside quickly and seen his driving licence. He looked good for his age, but then she didn't know what that really meant as she had no proper benchmarks, not even knowing her own father in his mid-fifties. She had certainly never dated or slept with any 53-year-olds and wondered, gosh, that beer was strong. He bent down and kissed her cheek his clean-shaven face smelling of some expensive aftershave. Oh, before I forget, please take my card, in case you need any future advice on steampunk. Though I'm pretty good at house hers too. I own a large former sea merchant's house in Toxteth, live in one apartment and let out the rest. Do-it-yourself keeps me exercised in between sitting in front of my laptop. He ringed the mobile number and passed it to her, and her stomach jumped a little again. Touché, Dr Warren, she thought. Then why she said it, she couldn't fathom, but blurted out. And Mrs Julian, does she help with the do-it-yourself too? He roared with laughter. She suddenly felt hugely embarrassed, her cheeks burning wildly. What on earth had got into her? No, Victoria, I never got around to marrying any past conquests. No Mrs Julian, in fact no Mrs anyone right now. Far too busy on this new book, he joked, his eyes flashing again. He waved on his way out. Bye. Bye, she whispered back, 
feeling stupidly forlorn, then thought about Abby and felt a distinct perking up again. Plus she was, or could be, the owner of a big house soon. She stirred back down the busy galley bar, and he had gone already. Then someone near the window caught her attention. It was her again, that woman, still with the bright mauve shawl wrapped around her head, standing near a table and staring vacantly through the window outside. Victoria immediately surmised the woman had followed her into the pub, decided to confront her once and for all, and find out why she was following her. She got up, determined to march over and demand an explanation. As Victoria got up out of her seat, the woman slowly turned around and stirred. She was very beautiful, possibly early twenties or so. Victoria could see under the shawl. She had long mousy hair, but the woman's expression seemed pained and troubled, like she had had some terrible problem she wanted to unburden. Victoria began to look down for her handbag, which had fallen onto the floor off the back of the seat, threw it over her shoulder and began a sprint to the window, and couldn't believe her eyes. No sign of her anywhere. Bloody hell, she was quick to move. She dashed over to the table where two couples were sat talking and canoodling. The shaven-headed guy nearest to the window looked up, obviously irritated that his kissing and fondling of a black-haired companion with her skimpy skirt up to her matching underwear, had been rudely interrupted. "'Can I help you, or what?' he uttered with a deep growl and heavy accent, pulling up his shirt sleeves to reveal a great muscled mass of purple and red tattoos of tall ships with sails and rigging. Victoria felt distinctly uncomfortable. "'I'm sorry, may I ask you? That woman who was standing next to your table a minute ago with the purple shawl, did you see which way she went?' "'Sorry, love, there was no woman at all standing here,' he replied curtly, looking distinctly unpleasant. Now she realised, too. His accent was really awful West Lancashire, mixed with Liverpool, like she used to hear as a child on the barges, especially the scruffy ones. "'But you must have seen her. She was right next to...' He got up out of his seat. "'Listen, how many more times do I have to say it?' There was no fucker here. You've been on the ale or what, you soft bitch? The other three friends all laughed, gratuitously, their mouths slathery, staring at her like she was some demented moron. She backed away. I'm sorry, you're probably right, not used to the beer in here, forcing a laugh, and then departed sharply back to her seat, quite ruffled and irritated. She got out her mobile and earphone mic. Abby answered immediately. Where on earth have you got to? I've been worried sick for the last hour. Your phone was on permanent voicemail and I've left three messages. You all right? Not falling down a hole or something? Sorry, I'm in the ship and mitre. At the top of Dale Street? What are you doing there? It's a great pub, mind. Used to be a 1930s art deco place, a very insane. Yes, I know. She was slurring a little. I haven't been on my own, looking then into her phone. Oh, I see, Mr Grey quickly shifting allegiances already then. Bugger, he's a nifty worker all right, and you sound pissed. Knickers intact. Abby, sometimes you get a bit over the top, she replied sharply, 
No, not the I only have eyes for Mr. Abigail. Please see my etchings, Mr. Gray. But someone else I met in the street called Julian, a steampunk writer, and he took me for lunch. Good Lord, I only leave you alone for five minutes and you're off cavorting with strangers. The sea air in Liverpool isn't good for you. Brings out that hidden wanton woman. I'll be there in five minutes. And where is this Julian guy now? He's vanished into the mists of time. Bloody hell, Vicky. I'll be there pronto. You sound a bit edgy, actually. Are you sure you're all right? Thanks, I'll be waiting outside. She buttoned up her coat and hurried to the exit, seeing those inebriated idiots out of the corner of her eye on that window's table, pointing and laughing at her again. Some sharp shopping at Zara in the afternoon, and a search for the former cavern club, now car parked over, soon consoled her earlier confused state of mind. And it was a pleasant relief to be back in the Adelphi Hotel, put her feet up in the lounge and perused the evening meal menu for a reservation for the two of them she had made during afternoon tea. Abby was relaxing in the swimming pool, both of them worn out, having already decided they needed a holiday to get over the holiday, and this was only day one. She smiled at Abby's mesmerised expression, when she described the mugging and then the delectable Julian saving her from a fate worse than a night out with her former boss, but she wanted some time on her own to reflect on the day's events. She had happily ventured all the gossip on lunch with Julian, and after copious giggling in Costa, causing even their staff to glare, she agreed that the combination of Artie Linton and Bookish Julian might be worth cultivating further if they get bored, <clears throat> although the likelihood was looking pretty slim. Once Abby heard excitedly about the required discussion when the enigmatic Evelyn West, especially the fact she was a textile artist, she had insisted that sooner rather than later meant first thing in the morning. Victoria had asked reception to book her a hire car for after breakfast. She was now determined to set off on the trail to Parbold and find the elderly lady and actually having Abby with her would be really useful. They had no maps of course, but reception would get them a car with a built-in sat-nav so logistics problem scientifically solved, especially as she realised it had been so long since she was last in Liverpool, that everywhere around seemed like an alien city. The surroundings had changed so much. She could easily have been in Moscow for all the recognition it was making on her senses. And undoubtedly the same would be said for her former childhood haunts in West Lancashire once they got there but she decided not to mention anything about the weird woman in the purple shawl. Whoever it was must have recognised her from school, or something. Probably a young sister of one of her old friends, although why the woman hadn't said anything she couldn't fathom. She had to admit, when she got a better look in the pub, the woman's long dark dress was fashionable, but actually quite unusual. It looked like linen, not a style she had seen in the places she normally shopped. It certainly wouldn't have looked out of place in Laura Ashley, or maybe a museum, like the woman was making some sort of retro statement. It was perplexing. Undoubtedly the woman had something bothering her. But once she and Abby left the city centre, that would be it, and the incident quickly forgotten. Pity Julian hadn't been with her when she turned up. He may have had something to say about the dress style. Abby came bounding in, her hair all wet, wearing a tracksuit top and bottoms. I'll just get a quick shower first and then I'll be down. 
Tell you what, I really like this hotel now, but has it changed? From its former grand old days in the past, when only the gentry or those with serious money could afford to stay here, place is now quite urban chic to appeal to the business hoi polloi. You mean like us? Victoria replied with a wan look. Abby glared back. No daft, we are the special ones. Well, certainly with that wet pink hair, you definitely are. Found your spaceship yet? Ah, bloody ha. But hey, I'm enjoying this holiday so far, and thanks, best friend, for bringing me along for the treat. Hmm, you'd better be useful tomorrow on our magical mystery tour. It might make me freak revisiting those places, even before we get to Osbrick Hall. You want to drive, actually? Yes, please. Must go, won't be a minute. I'll just find a seat over at the bar. Shall I get you a vodka and tonic too? If that's how you mean to go on, go for it. Then later we can slope off to the Blue Angel. What's that? Used to be a nightclub near the pier head. Don't know about that. I need a clear head tomorrow. Gosh, not like you. Ah, joke. Actually, you're right. We've had enough indulgence today with men and fantasies. And Downton Abbey is on the telly later. Victoria sat at the bar, munching some crisps with a double vodka and tonic as Abby arrived in a trademark black miniskirt and crop top. Your legs look quite tanned, actually, she remarked. What have you been up to? The sunbed that Ali installed in one of his back rooms, especially for me, because I said I liked his dark skin. I've beeped up the rest of it, me too, just as well in case Linton calls. I'm sure Ali probably peeped through the cracks in the door when I was under. I miss him, actually. And we get on well. He even asked me to marry him once, but he had been puffing on some hooker thing with his mates all night. Victoria smiled. I bet. Wishful thinking. Anyway, what are you going to order? I'm having the sea bass with potatoes and vegetables. Abby looked over the menu and her face lit up with a big grin. Mmm, just the job, not had that for years. Scouse, a plate of chips and pickled beetroot, please. Pardon? Abby perused her friend quizzically. I don't think you ever lived much when you were here as a child. Warming and nourishing on a chilly night, the seafaring and potato famine, escapee Irish, which there were many in Liverpool, brought scouse here generations ago, and the food of the gods has sustained many a poor family. You mean scouse is a food, not slang for the Liverpool dialect? Oh gosh, Vicky. I don't suppose, anyway. Talking about wanton women, do you know how much of a serious red light district this area by the station was in the old days? The hotel here has probably got all kinds of murky secrets lurking within the four walls of the old bedrooms. Really? Obviously, Abby replied dumbfounded with Victoria's ignorance. You've never heard of Maggie May, have you? and began to sing a variant of the old traditional Liverpool folk song in a quiet, lilting voice. Oh, Maggie, Maggie Mays, they have taken her away and she'll never walk down Lime Street anymore. She robbed so many sailors and captains of the whalers that dirty robin no good Maggie May. Victoria gaped, looking around at a myriad of male eyes focused on the cute woman in the tiny black skirt and fishnet tights, perched only just modestly on her bar stool. Shush, Abby, she whispered vehemently. Everyone is stirring. 
A chorus of clapping emerged from a group of businessmen further down as Victoria went bright red and Abby stood up and took a bow. Reckon we could be very well set up tonight. You can have the ugly one. Hey, cheer up. Only kidding. And there goes our food over to that table as she smiled at her waiter waving them over. The rest of the evening, despite three more vodka and tonics, ended up quietly in their twin room and Downton Abbey. For Victoria at least, it was the perfect ending for the day.